Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores how New Yorkers engaged with, reinterpreted, and understood antiquity. Most of the buildings that we've looked at in this series were built between 1800 and 1920. But in the final podcast of this series, I want to talk about an iconic New York building, but one that I certainly didn't immediately think of as being classically oriented. When I think of this building, I think of Christmas, and specifically I think of the Christmas tree. So in other words, I'm thinking about Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center is a cultural and New York icon. You think of the Christmas tree of ice skating, windows decorated at Saks, and all of Fifth Avenue lit up. I think of Top of the Rock. I think of 30 Rock with Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey. My daughter thinks of the Rockettes. So all these Christmas associations are really well known, but they also obscure the buildings and work of arts. They become a background to the spectacle of the holidays. So you might say, why am I thinking about Rockefeller Center and Christmas? And what does this have to do with classical architecture or classics or ancient history? Everything. There is classical myth and art lurking in plain sight. So in order to understand the role of classical myth at Rockefeller Center, we need to talk to an expert. So with me today is Dr. Jared Simard, a postdoctoral fellow in liberal studies at New York University. And he knows this complex really, really well as it's been the focus of his research the last few years. So. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elizabeth. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Thank you for coming. What I'd like to do today is to help at least start to orient us into space. Sure. So the complex is located in Midtown Manhattan, and it's bounded by 48th Street in the south and 54th Street uh, in the north and uh, between 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue. Oh, so it's really like a lot of space. It is. It's quite large. It's over 21 acres now. Oh, my goodness. So that is kind of like the center of of Manhattan, and it's huge. Now, it's called Rockefeller Center. Now, many people know of the Rockefeller family and know of David Rockefeller, who just passed away, but I'm not sure how many people understand how instrumental the Rockefeller family was to the cultural life of New York City. Can you tell us a little bit about the Rockefeller family? Sure, and I think that's a really great topic because as we're discovering, right, Rockefeller Center is hidden in plain sight in many ways. And behind that is the Rockefeller family, which also has contributed so much to the physical space and cultural life of New York City and its history. Um, you have, of course, Rockefeller Center, but beyond that, they've been associated with diplomacy in the UN. They have connections, of course, with the political past or Nelson Rockefeller. They have associations with building um, the Lincoln Center and being a part of that. So there's a lot of contributions in terms of business and also cultural life. You think of the Cloisters or Riverside Church. These are all Rockefeller enterprises in one way or another. Also, and there's Rockefeller University as well. Exactly, right, on the east side. So, I mean, they have touched pretty much any facet of life in New York City. It's a kind of remarkable thing. So tell us a little bit about John Rockefeller Jr. What was his upbringing, his education? Obviously, his father was the founder of Standard Oil, the, you know, biggest conglomerate in you know US history right. and also was you know he was the richest man in the world at one at the point time, yeah. right so tell us a little bit about the son because i feel like oftentimes sons of very rich men are kind of ne'er do well you know trustafarians but yeah. that wasn't like john rockefeller junior was it not at all i mean i think you know john d rockefeller junior uh, was the only son of John D. Rockefeller, and so he you know, was going to inherit all of that wealth and responsibility that went with that mm -hmm. in terms of how to carry on the family legacy. And uh, you know, his upbringing was very much in line with his parents' uh, Baptist upbringing and, and Protestant ethics, and that was a big part of you know, sort of the sort of strict 
home life that he had growing up. So they, you know, they abstained from alcohol and dancing and playing cards and things like that. So his upbringing was rather strict and focused on family life in the home. And his education was, in, in fact, quite classical. So he learned Latin and Greek and studied ancient art and architecture and philosophy. Even in his earlier years, there was a basis for an interest in, in the ancient past in many ways. Oh, wow. So it really also shows you that perhaps one's education is really tied to their later artistic pursuits and the things that they seem to think are very important and valuable. Now, we know that the family is this iconic symbol of capitalism. You've already alluded to the philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, how do we get to Midtown Manhattan between 5th and 6th, between 48th and 51st. How does he end up with this piece of land that turns into this remarkable building? Where are we in, and and when does he start thinking about this space? So, well, I have to back up for a quick minute because, you know, the Rockefeller family is really, uh, was based in Cleveland, Ohio, for a very long time, and that's where Standard Oil got its start. That's where John D. Rockefeller Sr. really was based. But in in the 1880s, the family moved to New York and became, along with many other of the sort of magnets of the time, New York became the sort of center for all of them. So that's where John D. Rockefeller Jr. got his start, was really in New York City. So he had that basis, that connection with New York. And if we fast forward to around the 1920s, John D. Rockefeller Jr. at that time was then pretty much controlling the family's philanthropic efforts. And he really wasn't associated with business at all. He was really just the head of of sort of the family name and philanthropy. And when he got pulled into this whole thing based on Otto Kahn, who was a a well-known banker and president of the Metropolitan Opera Company at the time. And in, in the 1928, Otto Kahn was holding sort of galas for the rich and famous at the time, trying to get investors for a location for to build a new opera house. And Rockefeller Jr. was invited to one of these, and one thing led to another, and he got pulled into this whole organization. And originally, the plan was he would put up the money for the land, and then that would be it. And everyone else would join in, and it would be on AutoCon and others to fund the actual buildings and, you know, make it a successful place. And so in 1928, he purchased a 99-year lease from Columbia University, which at that time owned the land. It was called their upper estate. And for $3 million per year, that was the rent he had to pay on the lease, which was an exorbitant amount at the time. And really uh, is a sort of unknown fact how much the Rockefellers, because of this, really helped fund Columbia University at the time. He has this lease, he has this land, everything's going well. And then the stock market crash of you know October 24th to 29th, 1929 occurs and everyone pulls out. And so now he's left with this huge amount of land, a huge lease and nothing to do. It really um, underscores the problems that he was facing in a way, but also the dire kind of circumstances for New York City and yeah. a really, really bad situation. So in a sense then, out of this very negative set of circumstances, perhaps comes something quite remarkable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and there's a whole sort of complicated history in terms of how then something gets developed, but he you know, turns to his team and finds a manager, John R. Todd, who is the grandfather of Christine Todd Whitman, who is the former governor of New Jersey. And Todd was well known in the construction business as sort of a great manager. And so he turned to him to sort of spearhead this effort because he knew he needed someone on the ground to really control things. And one thing led to another. They got a team of architects together and just went with it and started to design a brand new complex that wouldn't be centered around an opera house anymore, but something that would be commercially viable. Okay, so by commercially viable, you would mean basically office space, a big building, and a kind of a complex that could have 
rents and revenues coming from it. I mean, for sure. I mean, I think that was definitely a part of it. But one of the interesting things is that Rockefeller Jr. wanted it to be beautiful. And he wanted it to be an art center as well. I mean, I think he was really drawn to the idea of the opera center. And although they didn't build that, they did build two theaters as part of the complex, right? Radio City Music Hall, which is still there, and the uh, forgotten center theater, which was torn down uh, later in the 20th century. So, you know, there were, the arts was definitely a part of that. And of course, there was a huge art program that became part of the iconic nature of, of Rockefeller Center. And Junior was a big part of making that happen. Oh, so tell us a little bit more about the art. That sounds very intriguing. And, and actually now as I think about it, there, there are a lot of sculptures yeah. in the complex, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think down, you look at that iconic vision, kind of the tunnel looking up towards Rockefeller Center, you see yeah. the tree, and below the tree there's this golden figure. Yeah. And I don't know, except for us kind of nerdy classicists or nerdy classical archaeologists, I don't know that many of those people immediately know who that figure is. Right. So, well, it's Prometheus. Ah, Prometheus. Now, Prometheus is like one of the bad boys of classical antiquity sometimes. Yeah. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about Prometheus as a figure yeah. and why he might be in Rockefeller Center. Well, you know, it, it goes back to the myth of Prometheus. I mean, most people think of him as the, the god who brought fire to mankind. And uh, that's definitely a part of it. But a lot of the ancient sources also sort of cast him as a trickster figure. Um, and that's not necessarily a positive thing on its surface. But the other side of him is that he's this great benefactor, right? So that he, he provides fire to mankind. And that's sort of one thing led to another. That's a, a big part of uh, man's ability to become more like the gods, more powerful, and, and, and do a host of other things that are really important to our survival. So Prometheus has this sort of double vision from antiquity. And I think what's on display at Rock Center is that more benefactor side, right? Mm-hmm. The side of Prometheus that is a savior to mankind, one who allows him to do great things because of fire. You know, the fact that he's gilded and so on, I think that adds to all of that. And he's clearly in the center of the complex, right? He's uh, right below the main building, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, uh, which is the tallest one in the center of the complex. And he's in the sunken plaza. So he's he is in the center, and that gilded nature really sort of makes him stand out in, in a complex that's otherwise rather gray in color. Yeah, that's a really good observation because he is so striking. And also, if there's sunlight coming down and you have the reflective yeah. quality coming off, he's even more impressive. Mm-hmm. So Prometheus, as you've noted, kind of has this double-edged sword yeah. in terms sometimes of how people think of him in antiquity. Is yeah. he a common figure? Do we find him represented in other things, or is this kind of a one-off? Well, uh, in terms of antiquity, I mean, there are a few major sources. You think of Hesiod and the Theogony, and you also think of um, Prometheus Bound, which at one point is attributed to Aeschylus, although some scholars question that. And there's some other sort of then minor references to Prometheus, but those are the two main ones. And outside of that, he's really captured the imagination of artists, really, of painters throughout the the centuries. So you, you think of, you know, Rubens, Prometheus. And so that is something that is sort of like a touchstone. So he's definitely been in the arts, but he hasn't really been in terms of physical sculpture. Uh, he hasn't been a very common uh, subject matter for that. That's interesting. It kind of reminds us that sometimes what's valued in antiquity is different than how we might or how later yeah. centuries and cultures would interpret things. That mm-hmm. Prometheus maybe resonates particularly at this moment yeah. because technology is something that's becoming a really big thing. I mean, 
Rock Center was built with technology that was basically quite new and yeah. innovative, yeah. and to be able to create something that high is is extraordinary. Yeah, and you know, I think the context here is really important because, as you said, there is this sort of landscape of technology and improvement at the time, but it's also being built. You know, the the so we have nineteen twenty eight, nineteen twenty nine when he signs the lease. Right, all these things happened. Uh, at that time, but the buildings don't really start going up till 1931, and you know that stock market crash ushers in the Great Depression, which the United States doesn't come out of until after World War II. So there's a whole decade when these buildings are being built, and that's really the the, the immediate context of of all of this. And Rockefeller Center is, to its great legacy, employs. Uh, you know, over 75,000 construction workers at the time. And if you include all the other periphery people, sort of the, the, the masons and the quarry and, and the truckers build, you know, bringing everything in, it's almost a quarter of a million people that are employed. And just to give you a quick context, you know, FDR's uh, CCC program employed at height 500,000. So it's right with that. This is a private enterprise that's employing hundreds of thousands of people to its credit. And so Prometheus really plays a role in that because he, in some ways, I think, comes to symbolize John D. Rockefeller Jr. as someone who at the time was, be, you know, being a benefactor to the city by uh, employing all of these people uh, and keeping them out of the bread lines, right? And so I think that, you know, to his credit, that's a lasting legacy that's important. And to go back to what you said earlier about the technology, right, there's so much technology on display at Rock Center, both in terms of the construction of the building. They, had, they did some very innovative things with where they placed elevator banks in the buildings that was a sort of a tiered way, so no one elevator goes all the way up. It, it's very interesting. They did this all to preserve light and make the building actually more habitable in many ways for, for the people who would be working inside of it. And the other connection with technology is the tenants, the, the first major corporate tenants that sort of get it going on the sort of plus side in terms of money was RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, and NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. And each of them were pioneers in radio and television. And these were sort of the two main technologies of the time. So one can really think of Prometheus as symbolizing in a sense, John D. Rockefeller Jr., the whole building and the whole enterprise yeah. in and of itself. So sure. it's remarkably symbolic in that way. Mm -hmm. As you've noted, Prometheus is often not the focus of conversations of sculpture or art mm -hmm. around Rock Center, even though he's at this kind of strategic yeah. position. I think there seems to be one other character that everybody else knows yeah. well um, who has really good positioning on Fifth Avenue. And yeah. who's that? Atlas. Atlas is pretty cool, isn't yeah, he? Oh, very cool. Tell us a little bit about Atlas, where he is, why you think he's there, and maybe if you could, sketch a little bit of the history yeah. of Atlas as, again, another figure that mm -hmm. has captured the imagination yeah. of art artists, architects, authors since antiquity ended. So Atlas is a really interesting figure, and in some ways, even I tend to be drawn more to him than Prometheus, but... Uh, maybe that's just because of what, what we know about Atlas, but he is just this iconic figure from antiquity who is said to hold up the vault of the sky. This is often depicted as a globe uh, in art on, on his back. And so there's this, this titan who is struggling to essentially save us all, right? And, and he's doing this for eternity. And so there's a certain quality about him that I think just draws people to him because of that. And although he's a really sort of minor figure in, in terms of the ancient source material. But in terms of art, he's just really captured the imagination. Can I ask you a quick yeah. question? May I interrupt? Do you think that because these figures are more minor, there's kind of more scope for interpretation? Uh, that can definitely be part of it. I think also what's interesting at Rock Center, they really draw from, from the sort of broad understanding of these figures in antiquity. And 
uh, use that in, in the new context. And in that new context, they really take on a whole new life and meaning. That's both relatable, but then also new. And I think that's what's so interesting. Rock centers, I think, always, uh, and the artwork of rock centers, always in sort of two places. It, it's multifaceted in that sense. It's connected to the past. Uh, it's rooted in its own time in the Great Depression, but it's always looking forward to. And I think that's why it's become so iconic is it's ageless. It's so well designed and thought of that people can go to it to this day and are still understand what's happening. So to, to go back to what you said earlier, Atlas is on Fifth Avenue, which if anyone knows anything about New York, that's you know, one of the premier broadways of the city. It's the heart of the city, divides it east and west. And, and he's in this little alcove right across from St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, which was there before Rock Center went up. And so there's a sort of, you can play with that idea in your head in terms of why they're putting this very overt pagan god directly across from, you know, the Catholic archdiocese in New York. And if you're in uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral up on the altar all the way in and the doors are open, which they often are, uh, you're at eye level with Atlas. So, I mean, he's just staring right at you. So there's, there's a, you know, interesting connection to play with there. But he's in this alcove between a series of buildings called the International Buildings. He represents the sort of aspect of internationalism that was going on in the 1930s that Rockefeller himself was very much a part of. So each of these um, low-rise buildings that make up the complex on Fifth Avenue had a tenant from a, a, mostly a business syndicate that was largely based in an individual country. So there's the French building, the British, and an Italian building. And Atlas is nestled between two of these. So he's in this little alcove, and he's before the international building. And so each of the titans are each in premier positions that sort of highlight them and make them stand out. And Atlas obviously represents with this you know, globe on his back. And Rock Center, it's an armillary sphere. And uh, For those of us who are uneducated, what is an armillary sphere? Because I... I can't even say it. Yeah. So what is that? Because um, I always would say it's like an astrolobe or a globe, right. the, the uninformed over here. So tell us what it is. Well, an armillary sphere really sort of shows the various ellipses of the world, right? So it shows the latitude and longitude. It shows the uh, ecliptic lines and the solstitial lines. These are all these very technical sort of cosmological terms that have to do with, with the line of the Earth around the sun and so on and so on. And this particular one is very interesting because it points to the North Star. So its axis is you know, definitely connected to the stars and really positions Rock Center as uh, sort of cosmically centered in many ways, which is very interesting. So there's that strong sense of Atlas in that regard. But what's so interesting about him in Rock Center is that he really takes on a new aspect and one that connects to the technological aspect of Prometheus. And I sort of alluded to that with all of this idea of sort of connecting to the stars because Atlas in antiquity is associated with teaching man how to navigate the ocean. And you do that, of course, by looking at the stars. And so, you know, he's sort of one of the sort of mythic fathers of astronomy and astrology in antiquity. And that's a rather obscure and minor myth associated with him, but the art world's always captured that by showing the globe in sometimes open armillary spheres as he is depicted at Rock Center. And so the artists there really pull on that, and he comes and represents this, this sort of another technological aspect of the 1930s and 20s, which was, of course, uh, you know, sort of ocean liner companies, and flight didn't really take off till after World War II in any sort of large commercial sense. So it was really, everyone was traveling across the Great Pond by boat. Uh, what's so interesting about 
his position there is Rock Center had one of the largest passport offices of the time in New York City, a very large post office as well. And many of the syndicates that were in these international buildings were the various ocean liner companies that were bringing people, you know, you could go from New York to France or New York to London or wherever. So there's a direct connection then with another side of technology at the time. And so you really see these two Titan brothers, and they are their brothers in, in myth. And here they are positioned, you know, as the, the largest sort of freestanding sculptures in the complex. And they just uh, tell so thoroughly the sort of themes and meaning behind the art program at Rock Center. Well, they really do seem to kind of sum up the themes. Now, am I right in thinking there were other murals and yeah. also sculptures yeah. that were created at Rock Center? So one also wants to look at these in kind of a, a broader context. For sure. And, and there's, you know, over 100 individual artworks at Rock Center. Many of them are on the exterior. It's architectural sculpture and relief. But there are uh, freestanding sculptures on the interior. And, of course, there's many murals, especially inside 30 Rock. And there's a long history of those. But uh, one of the interesting things, I could just mention one if I have time, is Mercury. There's actually several Mercuries uh, in Rock Center, but I'll just mention one. And that's on the main central axis. So that's between a 49th and 50th Street. That's the center of the complex where the only building is 30 Rock. And that's the, the single central tower. That's the tallest uh, of the buildings in the complex. And Prometheus is at the, the bottom of that, right, in the sunken plaza. But you approach that between the French and British buildings. And that's called the Channel Gardens. And it slopes downward. And so as you're walking in, you see Prometheus. You look up, you see 30 Rock. And as you walk into the right, that's the British building to your right. And you see one of the main sort of artworks that stands out is a, a sort of gilded figure of Mercury cut into the side of the building. And it, it really stands out. And he's sort of flying over the waves. And uh, he has his characteristic winged hat. So you can clearly see it's him. And there's a, a blazing sun behind him, which is also gilded. And so uh, many have interpreted this to be symbolic of the idea that during the British Empire, right, the sun never set on the British Empire. And he represents both that, but also the idea of commerce, right? Of course, the idea of travel and the idea of the fleet. And so he connects with Atlas in that regard, which is very interesting because, of course, Mercury in some myths is a grandson of Atlas. So there's a, there's a lineage connection as well. They're sort of building a whole mythological family of gods that are then used to convey uh, all these sort of rather complex themes going on in Rock Center. Also, um, if you were walking down there and you saw Mercury, yeah. you might have come into New York City through Grand Central Terminal, and on the southern facade of Grand Central Terminal is an enormous yeah. statue of Mercury. Yeah. So it's, again, kind of underscoring transit and transportation yeah. that also, in a sense, these different gods positioned throughout the city kind of serve as guides for yeah. you if you were new to New York City. They're recognizable at certain points that there's kind of a language of mythology in mm -hmm. the city. Now, I wanted to ask one other thing yeah. because I know you've worked a lot on other myths. So mm -hmm. just as a quick section, could yeah. you tell us a little bit about your mapping mythology project? Sure. Because you just seem to know all about these myths, and it would be great to know a little bit about that project too. Sure, thank you. So mapping mythology I started many, many years ago. The whole purpose of it was to locate and identify and study the gods hidden in plain sight in New York City in particular. So it's a, a database of classical art and in the city, post-antique artwork. And I just went around walking the city, finding where all these images are. You mentioned one that's very well known, right, the Mercury on top of Grand Central Terminal. And so what we begin to see is that there's a whole network of classical artwork in the city, in particular public sculpture that is featuring a god as a subject matter. 
and it's often in premier locations in the city. So there's something very interesting going on, something very complex going on with the, the way New York and artists in, in the city and architects have thought of space and trying to beautify that space. And it, it's really across time in New York. Some of these date back to so the Greek Revival period in sort of in the 1830s, but some are then in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it, it's across uh, many different sort of facets of the art world and sort of trends in, in art. And so it's something that has had a sort of lasting impact on the city. And if you just look up, even for locals, if you just sort of act like a tourist for a moment and just turn your head up and really look at the buildings and the spaces around you in the city, you'll see that there's a sort of classical tinge to all of them. Well, Jared, that's a wonderful way to end this podcast. Um, we should all not be on our iPhones. So if you're listening to this podcast, walking around New York City, I want you to look up. I want you to see if you can see Mercury spying down on you, some other gods or goddesses. Athena. Athena. Athena's often around. And take the time to do that. Thank you so much, Jared, for joining sure. us today. And I'd also just like to say this is our final podcast. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at caas-cw.org. If you'd like to learn more about Mapping Mythology, please check out Jared's website, mappingmythology.com, and there'll also be a link on the website. Thank you so much for joining us today.